a byproduct of cleaning and vacuuming up here is that these spots that mark the permanent resting place of this go away. So that's, that's interesting. It's good to know. Uh, we're using the, the unique events of this morning uh, as an opportunity. The question is, what just happened here? What just happened behind me? I hope it's clear to all of, to all of us here uh, that this is a day worth celebrating in the life of this church. This is a special, special day. And we are overjoyed to join with the families represented um, in celebrating with them. Uh, this is a celebration for us as a church body. It's also an opportunity to remind ourselves of some things, to re-educate ourselves. Uh, what God has given us as he gave his church the ordinance of baptism that we have just observed. There have been uh, powerful statements made in front of us today, and not just one. More than one statement has been made. When a baptism takes place, uh, the person that's being baptized is stating something to us. In response to God's saving work, this is what a child of God desires to do. A child of God desires to publicly declare the great mercy that they have received from their loving Heavenly Father. And that statement has been made to us. But as a baptism is taking place, the church is stating something too. A church's leadership is responsible to administer baptism after hearing a credible profession of faith. This is not something that we take lightly. Now, what did not just happen here this morning? Well, what did not just happen is that two young individuals received salvation. That did not happen in front of us. A baptism is a public declaration commanded of God's church by Christ himself. And it demonstrates visibly a reality that has already taken place spiritually. It's an action uh, that's constantly associated in the Bible with recognition of God's work in saving a person. As we come across baptism uh, described and uh, discussed in the New Testament, we find it coming in those places. Acts 2.38 is one of these. We read there, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I I read those to you just so you can hear them and notice how closely together we find in the Scriptures uh, God's act of saving a person uh, and the baptism that accompanies this. Let me read Mark 16, 16 again, though, to you, because this gives us a very important and careful uh, clarification. We read there, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Do you notice what the second half of that statement makes very clear? What is the crux of the matter here when it comes to our condemnation or not? The crux of the matter is belief, not the baptism. Baptism is the public identification with Christ as my Savior. But when we see these things together so closely, it does make a powerful point to us. And that is that the Bible does not not speak to the scenario of a person being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
who then goes on in their life and remains hidden, refusing to accompany that faith with a confession of Christ. Such a confession is very clearly not a required component of the salvation. One thinks of the um, um, uh, the man on the cross beside, beside Jesus um, who professed his confidence in the message of Christ and in Christ, uh, uh, in the truth of, what, of who he claimed he was. No opportunity for baptism there. The man had minutes to live. And yet Christ says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Let me read a couple more passages to us, and then I'm going to have you turn to, to a couple of these and look very carefully with me at them. Um, but let me read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. You're welcome to turn here if you'd like. Romans 10, beginning in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you hear the, the uh, accompanying of the faith with the confession of that faith publicly? Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And it's the statement of our baptism together uh, that highlights the unity that we have together as the body of Christ. This is one of those areas where we can be very helped in understanding the significance of a thing, like what we've just seen, by listening to some of these ways that the Bible describes it to us. In the time that we have this morning, I want us to look at two separate passages. It will be, perhaps to you, amazing at how, um, how similar they are to one another, and yet each one offers some unique, uh, some unique statements concerning baptism. To begin, would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 and find verse 25. I'll read Galatians 3, 25 through 27. Beginning in verse 25, Paul says this, But now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. He's been speaking about the law prior to this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Do you hear the equation there between those who have come to God through faith in His Son and those who have declared that work of God in their heart, that gracious work, through baptism. Now, right away, we can set aside any ideas that Paul is equating my baptism here with the moment of putting on Christ. That's not what he's saying. In this entire section, Paul has been making clear that we are one with Christ only through faith. It's the entire point of what he's been arguing. What he's doing here is to equate our putting on Christ with the reality that lies behind the picture that we see in baptism. You might even put it this way. He is using the word baptism here as a metaphor for the spiritual identification 
with the life of Christ. And on this, uh, John Stott gives a very helpful explanation to what Paul is doing here. Listen to what Stott says. He says, We must give Paul credit for a consistent theology. This whole epistle is devoted to the theme that we are justified through faith, not circumcision. It is inconceivable that Paul should now substitute baptism for circumcision and teach that we are in Christ by baptism. The apostle clearly makes faith the means of our union with Christ. He mentions faith five times in this paragraph, but baptism only once. Faith secures the union. Baptism signifies it outwardly and visibly. Let me say that again. This is such a helpful way to see the relationship between these two. Faith secures the union. Baptism signifies it outwardly and visibly. Thus in Christ, he says, by faith inwardly, verse 26, and baptism outwardly, verse 27, we are all sons of God. Now there's something that we shouldn't miss there, and that is this reality that baptism, and even as the the word is used and as the picture itself is meant to be used, it serves to metaphorically speak of the the reality of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that when we read things like we have just read here in this passage. Because what that means is that Paul is not, uh, he has not simply found a very clever metaphor to give us. It's not the case that what Paul did here is try to find a way to express our union with Christ. How can I say this? Or, and then uh, point to the Christian ordinance of baptism and say, this is kind of what, what I'm talking about. No, he chose that in this passage because that's exactly what the physical sign itself exists for in the first place, is to show, demonstrate, declare the union that we have with Christ. Now, Paul makes that very same point in the second passage we'll look at together. But what, we, what is added and what we're about to see in Romans chapter 6, and you can be turning there, is that the, the very nature of what is it that's being pictured in baptism about our union with Christ? How are we un, united with Christ? Paul lays out in Romans 6 exactly what pictures are being intended for us. As we obey God's command to follow our, uh, our faith in Christ with a public declaration in baptism. Read along with me as I, look at, uh, as I read to you verses 1 through 5. Romans 6, 1 through 5. Here, Paul writes this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we? I almost wish we could just stop there and hear that emphasis. How can we? He's describing something impossible for one who has been given life. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, this is not different than the point that we 
saw in Galatians a moment ago, but I think we see it here with even more clarity and explanation. Our identification with Christ, he calls it baptism into Christ. That identification with Christ, which is pictured by our literal baptism, declares some things to those who witness. It declares, verse 3, that we are united to Jesus in his death. It declares, verse 4, that we are united to Jesus in his burial. And it declares, verse 4, that we are united to Christ in his new life as well. Leon Morris put it very well when he said, Paul is saying that it is quite impossible for anyone who understands what baptism means to acquiesce cheerfully in a sinful life. The baptized <clears throat> the baptized have died to all that. I hope I never forget the way that he has worded that. It's impossible for anyone who understands what their baptism signifies to acquiesce cheerfully in a sinful life. Are we speaking of sinless perfection here? Are we speaking of no sin? Of course not. We're speaking of someone who has been changed because they have been connected to the life-giving vine of Christ. They're not the same anymore. And now, what do we see in that person as they confront their sinful nature, their indwelling sin that continues in the flesh? Now what we see is a picture of dissatisfaction with that sin that remains. I am, I feel awkward in my sin. Something is not right until the day that my sin is put away from me once and for all. And the longer I walk with Christ, the more my hatred of sin grows, the more my humility towards our merciful God grows. And imperfectly, the more I find myself putting sin to death. Now, this is starting to sound like a gospel presentation of what God has done for us in Christ. It's because the gospel is exactly what's on display in the ordinances that God has given to his church. It's no coincidence. The pictures he gives us are meant to put himself on display in all of his glory. To put his work in us on display. Need for restoration and cleansing. That was just put on display in the testimonies, and in the washing of the water. Utter reliance upon Christ as we follow him in his death, trusting him to unite us to himself in his life. That's put on display. Rescue from death through union with Christ. That's put on display in what we've just seen. And that's what these two young people have decided. Uh, excuse me. That's what these two young people have declared to be the reality in their own lives. They've been taught and they sense that this is a work of God, bringing someone from death to life. And the longer they live, the more that truth will bear itself out in their lives. As they look back, they'll know, I cannot boast. He holds me. So where, where do you come in? This morning, are you, are you simply spectators of what has taken place? I would suggest to you that you 
ought not think of yourself as a simple spectator here this morning. If you're a member of this church, if you're a believer and you are a part of the invisible body of Christ, you've just witnessed something important in the life of a fellow brother and sister. And there ought to be some responses from you. And I think it's safe to say we could consider these obligations. One is this. Rejoice. I'm glad we just applauded when that finished. This is something worthy of celebration. Something worthy of praise has just taken place in front of us. And I ask you, what does the Bible command us to do when our brothers and sisters are rejoicing? Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what it commands us to do. Now, for some of us here, that may be easy this morning. For some of us, that might be very difficult. We know, don't we? Some of us have come in to this place this morning with tremendous burdens. And I pray that as they have been here and worshipped alongside their brothers and sisters, um, that they have felt comfort and encouragement and that they would continue to do so. But whatever your burden is this morning, you've been given right now an opportunity. And in fact, you are exhorted to fight the fight that's necessary to express joy today for, what, for, for your little brother and sister in Christ. Secondly, sense your obligation. Sense it as a witness to their public declaration. You have now heard them declare their identity in Christ. The time may come when they may need people to come alongside them at points in the future. And you have something unique. You have a memory. You have a connection point that no one outside of this room will ever have. You've just received a connection with these two young people, part of your body now, that no one else in this world will ever have of the same exact type because you were here as a witness to what took place. If someday they are overcome with burdens, and they are being tempted, excuse me, tempted to doubt God's promises, to doubt His goodness, You may do what the biblical authors often do to us. You may remind them. Remember what you stood that day and declared about God and His goodness? I heard you. It's still true today. Take heart. It's still true. If someday it comes that they find themselves wandering from the Lord, we can remind them of this day And I'll tell you what, there is a very bad way that we could do that. But there's a right way as well. May we never... 
May we never, if the day comes, that they find themselves wandering from the Lord. May we never come to them. May we never come to them and say, Riley, Evie, take comfort in your sin, because I remember the day you were baptized. Far be it from us to ever say such a thing. Because no conversion took place here today, did it? Not in front of us. But there is a way to point to this day. You can come to that brother or sister and say, I watched you publicly identify yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ as dead in him. As alive only in him. How could you now dishonor him this way? Turn around and go back. All believers in their life will be obliged to love them like that, but you heard them today. You were here. And that's a special thing. Third, use the opportunity of this day to remember that you have that same obligation to all of us. You live your Christian life, if you're a member of this church, as a part of this body of baptized believers. And gaining these new obligations toward these two this morning can refresh our memory about the obligation that we all have to each other. It's the same. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 say this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you be speaking to the church there. The application is something that does go beyond the church, but in a special way he's speaking to brothers and sisters in this local body. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now as Riley and Evie have joined with the church in their public proclamation of Christ and of his work in them. They will now, for the first time, join with our body in corporately remembering and proclaiming Christ's death through the Lord's Supper. The church is often, uh, we speak of this as communion, Lord's Supper or communion, and that's intentional because this is something that we do by God's design together. We've talked about there being some things we have said that have been said this morning in the baptism service. But we say many things together as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. We call Christ our source of true spiritual nourishment together. We proclaim his death when he sacrificed himself for us. We proclaim our membership in the new covenant, that blessed new covenant Because that covenant is inaugurated through the blood of Jesus. That blood is what we will signify with the cup. As we'll read momentarily, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. But before we continue to do so, we get to uh, stand together and sing about these realities that we are about to live out in front of each other.
what we are about to share in together is another sign that Christ has given his church to participate in together. And it's vital that it be recognized as that. This is an event in the lives of believers. This is something that belongs to the church and only to the church. And as such, it comes to us from God's word with a warning. If you do not belong to Christ, if you know that you have not yet bowed to the authority of Christ as your God and King, trusting in His death and resurrection as your only hope for life, you must not share this with us. To you, I would say, as a friend, that your need is not for this symbol. You need what the symbol represents. Don't partake of symbolic juice. Feast upon Christ himself. This is the loving call that our Father has for you this morning. If you're here and that's the case, he intends for you to see something of the sacrifice that he has offered for sinners and to hear the call as he beckons you to himself in humility. We do that only when God has worked to reveal to us the guilt of our sins so that we know that we stand rightly condemned before God because of our rebellion. We choose to trust God's claims in his word that he promises to pardon all of those who put their faith in his son, all of those who trust the work of Christ as he died on the cross. We turn from our life of self-worship to a life lived before his face for his glory. And when we do that, the Bible says that what has happened is that God has worked in our hearts. He's given us a new heart, removed a heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He's removed the blindness from our eyes so that we can see the glory of Christ. And he has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of the Lord Jesus and what God has done. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we would ask you to contemplate for the next few minutes. For God's people in this place, you need to know that this meal is for you. And we've often used the language here uh, of the Heidelberg Catechism when it asks the question, who may participate in, at the Lord's table? And it answers this way, believers in Christ who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Furthermore, who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. In other words, this is a picture of a true believer manifesting their still sinful but repentant heart. It's the picture that is being painted for us there. If this is you, then join us in sharing the Lord's Supper. Will the men who are serving this morning please come forward? And as they come, I'll tell you, if you're new here... uh, We will hand out the elements one at a time. Please hold yours until all have been served, and then we will, uh, for each, partake together.
We read in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26, Paul says these words, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, it continues. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you please pass your cups to the middle aisle? What a joy to worship together in all of these ways today, isn't it? Please stand with me for our benediction this morning. Coming from Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you are not only dismissed, you're also invited to stay and enjoy the lunch with us. I think we're going to start right now the process of breaking down chairs and bringing out tables. If you know how that works, it'll be old hat for you.